This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, senators want to know what uh, Twitter's Jack Dorsey and Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg had to say about the company's efforts to really stop foreign meddling in elections and uh, also on deceptive, biased messages. Here to make sense of it all, Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. What stuck out for you? Beyond the beard. Yeah. And the <laughs> nose ring. The nose ring, right. And the nose ring. Yeah, at least he didn't wear a hoodie or a T-shirt. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, I just think the fact that there was no big news is going to be a victory uh, for these two companies and, and for the social media technology space overall. I think, uh, you know, the... Whenever you know Zuckerberg came, or now Cheryl and, and and Jack Dorsey, when they come to Washington, I think they just want to simply get across the point that they recognize this as a significant long-term issue for their companies and their platforms, and for social media in general. Um, and number two, that they're willing to take the long play here, invest whatever needs to be invested from a, a people perspective. And Facebook has doubled the amount of people they have monitoring this stuff, or just flat out R and D. And we see the capex for a lot of these companies just up dramatically over the last couple of quarters. So they're kind of putting their money where their mouth is. And they just want to get in front of this issue so that Congress doesn't get it in their mind that maybe this uh, industry needs uh, regulatory oversight akin to some of the other communication sectors, whether it's telecom or media. But does it need regulations? You understand this space really well. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's interesting. I think, you know, there's I think one issue where people feel pretty good about is, you know, data privacy, data security. That's an area that is probably on a global scale going to require a more robust kind of set of rules. We already see, um, you know, Europe uh, take the first steps, whether it's uh, data privacy or or, or uh, other issues. And the question is, well, will the U.S. follow suit? Historically, uh, the U.S. regulatory environment has taken a very light touch right. to technology. And so when you look at these two companies, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about social media as sort of one big thing. And obviously looking at these two companies together in the sense that they're both there on Capitol Hill, Facebook uh, and Twitter. But there are some distinct differences in how they have to deal with this. And even in the presentations that we saw from the the two senior executives today, break it down for us. Yeah, well, yeah. Facebook is is very much of a, yeah. Obviously, it's a social platform. People interact. There's a lot of uh, personal news, but there's also, uh, you know, you know, people can set up whatever uh, pages they want on on Facebook and 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 you know, and kind of get a a, a community together and yeah. to foment I- ideas, but either pro pro or con c- certain issues. Twitter is more, as we all know, kind of just more of a, a news platform, a megaphone, and and there it's really hard to police who says what. And um, but I think both. I think both companies needed to come, and I think they were fairly successful today saying that, um, you know, we know we now take need to take responsibility for this. And that's something that as recently as a year ago, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg would not even acknowledge. So the industry's come a long way. Uh, they're starting to put their money where their mouth is. And the question is, will that be enough? And, you know, we'll have to see how it goes in this elections, the, the mid- midterms. Um, you know, if there's any significant issues, then they're going to be right back in front uh, of these same uh, regulators. How hurt was Google in all of this? 
office. Google, you know, is it's just very bad optics seeing seeing them the, or not seeing that them there. The empty chair. Uh, yeah, the empty chair. And um, you know, I just I'm not really sure why they did it. Um, you know, I think that I'm whether they're not comfortable with their executives being in front in that kind of environment. Uh, or whether they feel like the search environment is a different environment that doesn't share a lot of the same issues that apply to some of these social platforms. But, you know, the I, w- I would point out that YouTube, uh, you know, is a, the largest growing uh, online video uh, services also has lots of issues here. But I just think uh, I guess Alphabet came to the uh, conclusion that they did not want to be. Uh, I think kind of grouped in with uh, these two other companies. And so when you were listening to the questioning from the lawmakers, both in the in sort of the tone and the substance, was it what you expected in, in both cases? And, and was there anything that surprised you in terms of what came at the executives? Well, I think it was, they, you know, the first time around with Zuckerberg, it just became painfully clear to all observers that uh, our members of Congress really are not up on some of the issues facing technology <laughs> it did companies. It like at times Sheryl Sandberg was like, well, let me explain it to yes, you. Yes, yeah. So let um, me tech explain this. Little yeah, woman exactly, exactly. So, you know, they were a little bit better this time. I'm sure their staff got them a little bit more and more prepared. Uh, but it just, it, it's really clear that one of the reasons why um, I think the U.S. technology uh, marketplace um, has not received more of a technical oversight is because you just it's very tough to regulate an industry that's just iterating on a daily basis and for regulations to try to police that it's it's proven you know almost impossible so you know you know, the, in the U.S., we, we've taken this view that uh, the technology, uh, the best way for technology to, to grow and to develop is with a very light regulatory touch. And because I think practically speaking, it's very difficult to do anything else. Does Twitter have the deep pockets, though, to do what it needs to do that we know Facebook's already doing, spending on people to oversee things? Yeah, the, the, they obviously don't have the level of resources that Facebook has, but I think they are clearly in a position to be able to, uh, you know, kind of put in in, in place processes and uh, protections and, and data privacy issues. I think they do have the wherewithal to do that. We'll see that in their numbers uh, over the next several quarters. But, you know, Facebook in particular has really stepped up their spending and their CapEx. And, um, you know, I think Twitter, well, they have a, I think it's a simpler platform to police. And I think the fixes for them may be a little bit simpler. So they may not need to do some of the same level of issues that, that Facebook is doing. 30 seconds left, Paul. Is this it, you think, for uh, testimony from these guys for a while? Did people he- hear what they <laughs> needed to hear, or are we going to see this all over again in the next few weeks or months? Well, again, I think they probably quelled the, the, the fires a little bit, uh, but yeah. the real test is going to be the mid- midterm elections. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's going to be issues. We know that. It, it appears from everything we read from the, from the intelligence agencies that Russia is not backing down. So there will be issues, and we'll just see how the tech companies deal with it. Paul Sweeney, he, of course, is U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst, keeping track of everything going on in Washington today with those hearings. Jack Dorsey and Sheryl Sandberg of Twitter and Facebook, respectively, testifying. Um, We're going to take you out with a little uh, Dave Matthews band there, Uh, Carol. You know, get you not letting summer go uh, all the way (laughs) completely. guest or just move in. Uh, Apparently that's what Marriott International is saying. Uh, Launching some new branded residential properties, expanding that portfolio by more than 70% by 2022 to help break it all down for us. Tony Capuano, Executive Vice President, Chief Global Development Officer from Marriott International is back with us. He's based down in Bethesda, Maryland, but he's here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, in New York today. And Tony, you were telling us a little bit before we came on air that 
you were unfortunately for you in downtown Manhattan yesterday. Um, so everyone probably lost weight uh, if you <laughs> no were outside. Question. We melted a bit, but well worth right. We and so what were you what were you doing down there uh, with our partners? Flag Luxury. We did a groundbreaking for a new Ritz Carlton in Nomad. Okay, at Twenty uh, Eighth and Broadway, two hundred and fifty room new Ritz Carlton hotel. Wow. And so on the residential side, I'm very intrigued by this because I feel like, especially in big cities as I travel around the world, you are seeing – my parents just moved to Atlanta and they were talking about this new Ritz-Carlton residence, I believe, Mm -hmm. that's built right there on Peachtree Street. Uh, You see the St. Regis that's done so well out in San Francisco. I mean this is quite, as we were talking about at the top, quite the portfolio that you guys are building up and and sort of a different uh, approach to residence, it feels like. It is. It's, it's interesting. We've been at it for almost two decades now. We did our first branded residential project back in 2000. And when we started, it really was an enabler of hotel deals. Ah. You look at how it's advanced over these two decades. We now have 90 projects open, another 60 in the pipeline, and it's become a viable business for us. So when you say enabler of hotel me- deals, what do you mean by that? Well, early on, you might have a project that would have been difficult to finance as a standalone Uh, hotel. And we had some partners that said, if I can incorporate a residential component, it may make it a more economically viable project. So what you're doing downtown is about a half a billion dollar investment, correct? Correct. And it is a combination of hotel and a residence's tower. So, Tony, give me an update on terms of ROI, return on investment. How... How much do you get? How quickly do you get it when you do this combination of hotel and residence? Yeah, I think one of the keys, um, obviously the returns vary from market to market and country to country, but one of the keys with the residential component is you're getting pre-sales, and those pre-sales bring cash in early to the project. They also give evidence of the economic viability of the project, which often unlocks the debt financing. Is it so good, though, that you want to do most future projects as a combination? It really depends on the market. I mean, there are certain markets where you have tremendous oversupply of residential uh, or the price per square foot that you're able to command is not particularly compelling. But in markets where we think there is a strong residential uh, component, it makes a lot of sense. All right. We we can talk about your pipeline in a second, and that's interesting for the residential side. But let's talk about what people really care about. That's their points. Like, let's just be honest sure. here. People love tracking their points. They love cashing them in. Obviously, one of the things that people have been watching very closely with the merger that you guys just underwent was how is it all going to shape out between uh, Marriott Rewards, Ritz-Carlton Rewards, uh, and SPG Starwood. Uh, how's that all taken shape? What can people expect there? Well, August 18th was a big day for all those people that love their points. We fully integrated the Marriott and uh, Starwood legacy programs. Uh, You can now earn and redeem at all 6,700 hotels worldwide. You have one rewards number. You have one points balance. And so that was a a pretty significant milestone. How hard was that to do technically? It seems daunting to me. I'm the wrong one to ask. I barely turned my laptop on. But I am told by our IT folks it was a monumental task. And I actually think, obviously, we're still doing some of the cleanup of some minor glitches. 
But given the scale and complexity, it went uh, incredibly well. Because I have to think you hear a lot about that. I mean, given what you do in development and touching as many customers as you do, I mean, this is important to – I mean, Carol, you know, right? I mean, this is important. It is important. Um, Forgive me, though. Can I change gears for a second? Okay. We're not going to talk about points anymore? All right, all right. Because when you have somebody like this, and as we're trying to figure out kind of what's next here for our global economy, I mean, you guys are obviously making investments. You're making – you know, you're building and so on and so forth. But what are you seeing and what kind of visibility do you have at this point? Because we're worried about emerging markets and whether there's going to be spillover. Yeah, I mean, I think our business continues to be strong when you look at – As strong as it was six months ago? Well, yeah. I mean, if you listen to our second quarter earnings, we really gave a steady-as-she-goes report in terms of our expectations of both domestic and global RevPAR. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing a little better than we had anticipated in many of the Asia markets as well as some of the European markets. Uh, pretty steady domestically. Uh, corporate earnings continue to, to be compelling for us. We're seeing a bit of a pickup in group pace. So we're, we're – pretty uh, bullish about uh, the future of, of travel and lodging. Committing to any new long-range projects? Uh, just to continue to try to grow a portfolio of 30 just brands around the world. Just want to know CapEx. Come on, come on. <laughs> just a little bit more. All right, you're more. saved by the bell, saved by the clock. Tony <laughs> yes. Capuano, uh, EVP and Chief Global Development Officer for Marriott. Thanks so much uh, for stopping by to visit. And on the subject of trade, trade factors into everything we're doing. And Carol, private equity, you know, I love it. Yes, you know, you do. I love talking about it uh, from all different angles. We're very fortunate to have Paul Aversano. He is managing director of the private equity services group at Alvarez and Marsal, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. So, Paul, you just heard the president talking about NAFTA specifically. Trade, I have to think, and the private equity guys I talk to validate this, it's got to be on every deal maker's mind, right? Because almost no deal is 100% domestic at this point. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think what you're seeing right now is a significant amount of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know the public equity markets don't like uncertainty. However, from an M&A deal-making perspective, sometimes uncertainty breeds opportunity. Um, so I think you could almost have it both ways. Well, that's what I wonder. With the uncertainty, does it make valuations maybe more attractive or create some unsettled situations that does provide o- opportunity for, for private equity? Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, we've heard that from several of our institutional investor clients where they say, you know what, some of this uncertainty, if the markets come down, I mean, asset valuations are at record high mm-hmm. all over the world. And I think if you have some uncertainty, the markets come down, it creates buying opportunities. And I think one of the things that we have today that we didn't have several years ago is a huge amount of dry powder. You know, I think there's over a trillion dollars of capital yeah. sitting on the sidelines. Well, if the markets react and pull back, that's going to create buying opportunities. You're going to see a wave of capital fly into the market. Well, that's kind of interesting because that provides a, a second leg, a third leg, a fourth leg, if you will, to the financial markets potentially. Oh, absolutely. Correct. Correct. Amongst other things. I mean, I think, you know, I, I've been casually referring to it as a vortex of volatility around the world. <laughs> yeah. There are more. That. Yeah, <laughs> there there are more variables today that I think are impacting not just the public equity markets globally, but also just private equity deal making and M and A in general. From foreign currency movements, interest rates, inflation, geopolitics, trade, tariffs, Brexit. I mean, 
you know, the world is an increasingly global place and something somewhere, Turkish lira, impacts something somewhere else. So you said uh, a word that really triggered something in, in my mind. There's a story in the Bloomberg today. Brexit's like a, quote, building on fire and buyout <laughs> firms are circling. I, I can't get away from that headline. Um, Brexit specifically, Europe right now, is that among the best opportunities in terms of where private uh, equity dealmakers are looking? How, how do you feel about that uh, that area? Well, what's, I, I am by no means a Brexit expert, but sure. I can tell you the results of our European business, and yeah. we have a very large presence throughout Europe. Um, it really hasn't impacted dealmaking at all. In Interesting. Europe. You know, what, what I think is happening is particularly U.S.-China relations, whether it be regulatory issues – you know, U.S.-China cross-border deal-making is down significantly. Where has the Chinese money gone if it's not coming to the U.S.? Europe has been the large beneficiary of Interesting. that. And I think you know, the uncertainty that Brexit has created has created buying opportunities, and, and that's why you're seeing some of the value there. Which think about the longer-term consequences, right? We talk about changing alliances kind of in the global sphere, and, and you do wonder if China is doing more deals in Europe, what other kind of alliances are they going to be creating in the future? Oh, absolutely. That, that's, Trade and other, if yeah, you will. And that's, I think, a risk for the United States. But the other thing to point out is and, – and I always look at it you know, running a global business at Alvarez and Marsal. Currency movements are yeah. a big thing. So we have a very strong dollar, as you know, versus a lot of foreign currencies, particularly in the emerging markets. And you know, that, creates, that creates buying opportunities in those markets with a stronger dollar are from you an at, M&A perspective. But are you actually doing it? Are people actually pulling the trigger on it already? Oh, absolutely. Really? Places like Brazil, yeah. places like India, those businesses for us are – on fire. Um, you know, if you look at it, I mean, as the currency moves, that's where the capital flows. Only about 30 seconds left. How much pressure are the private equity dealmakers feeling because of this trillion dollars of dry powder? Is that starting to weigh on them and force them to do deals a little bit more aggressively at this point? I would say to the first part of your question, yes, they are feeling pressure to transact. Have they resorted to the fact of, of doing aggressive deal making? Not so much okay. yet. But the answer, the key there is yet. Paul Iversano, Managing Director of the Private Come Equity back. Services Group, Alvarez Please. and Marcel, uh, and also the Global Practice Leader of the firm's Transaction Advisor Group. Love talking to you. I love talking about private equity. You? I do. No. I do. I can't get enough. Ooh, you make me nervous. Yeah, the route in emerging markets making investors nervous and showing really no signs of letting up today. Got an index of stocks slipping towards bear territory. And don't even ask me about the currencies, man. Our Damien Sassauer has been looking into this. He's getting no sleep. He's drinking lots of coffee. because His summer getting... is over. <laughs> His summer is over in a big way. He has that look of a man who <laughs> is back to work in a big time. He's also our chief emerging market credit strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, which is why he's getting no sleep. He's in our New York studio. Um, yeah. How do you ah, – Tell us what's going on. Yeah, well, school is back in session, Carol, <laughs> for sure. Um, look, I mean, um, so emerging markets, right? I mean, we live in a world where value is defined on a relative basis. So, you know, we were just chatting a minute ago about, you know, is there the possibility of contagion from emerging markets into the U.S.? At this stage, I personally don't see the transmission mechanism uh, there for it to kind of flow through um, at this point. But we've been in this 
place before where emerging markets have definitely slipped in. I mean, you can look at the crisis in 98. You can look at um, 2015 taper tantrum. You know, we've been here before, so so I'm not going to say no. Does it become a contagion to the more developed world because you're looking at banks' exposure, financial exposure? How does it become contagion? So certainly certainly it depends in which region you're looking at. So if you look at Turkey, for example, a lot of the European banks definitely have some significant exposure to Turkey. And so, yeah, you can definitely see them get a bit of a hit here. You can see non-performing loans tick up across Europe just on the the back of that alone. In in Latin America, it's a little bit different. Um, You know, Argentina is still a dollarized economy. Um, and, you know, the difference between Turkey and Argentina is whereas on one hand, um, people actually uh, on the ground in the real economy in Turkey, they spend and, and, and save money in lira. In Argentina, they spend and save money in dollars. Right. So and, and the difference there, and this is something that I think, you know, the markets aren't really um, looking at very closely is, you know, the markets are pricing in. You know, credit default protection, five-year CDS in Argentina is 800 basis points. It's far more expensive to hedge or to protect your risk in Argentina than it is in Turkey, yet Argentina is doing everything right. They're appealing to the IMF. They are putting through structural reforms. You know, Mauricio Macri has has done a very good job there where, you know, President Erdogan in Turkey has, you know, put his son-in-law, um, uh, you know, in the highest, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, so, so you know, there's, there's, there's a divide there. And yet Turkey's, you know, uh, you know, just from a default protection standpoint, you know, it's, it's being priced, um, you know, far less expensive than Argentina. So from an emerging market practitioner standpoint, hmm. there are relative value opportunities abound. And I think but the that's market the, can get it wrong, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and look, I mean, I, I can't sound the all clear on emerging markets at this point. I don't think few, anybody can sit here and in good faith do that. But, you know, you know, just looking ahead and what does the emerging market need to kind of get off its back? I've heard a lot of people talk about the Fed taking perhaps a pause, you know, kind of easing on the brakes here. And But, you know, even if they were to do that, I'm not entirely sure that's enough at this stage because, mm-hmm. you know, if the Fed were to kind of ease on the brakes, you still have the ECB, which is going to be, you know, ending its, um, you know, uh, you know, unconventional monetary stimulus program. You still have the Bank of Japan. You still have the People's Bank of China, who is one of the largest of the big four central banks, on a deleveraging campaign. So financial conditions are tightening, and that's bad for emerging markets. So, Damien, let's talk about a couple other names in terms of countries. Brazil is one where I feel like the headlines are there on a near daily basis. Presidential candidates in jail, sure. um, general <laughs> turmoil for everyone. And yet, you know, we hear you, know, you talk about relative um, relative value. It also goes back to appetite for risk, right? And we do hear some more uh, hardy investors saying they're going into Brazil right now. That there's a buying opportunity there. So, how do you suss out um, what emerging markets are eh, may may have some opportunity for? people with a certain fortitude. Yeah. No, I mean, I still think you have to maintain a bit of a defensive stance in emerging markets, just given where we are. And, 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 and let me tell you where we are. We're only really back at 10 to 15-year averages. Emerging markets always overshoot. They overshoot to the upside, and they overshoot to the downside. Welcome so, to the world of emerging markets. Hello, everybody, right? Right. So <laughs> if I'm telling you we're right smack in the middle of where we need to be, I mean, you know, 
I still think there's, you know, there's more pain ahead. There's still way further it can go. I mean, spreads aren't really as attractive as they were in Brazil, for example. If you just look back at the end of the commodity crisis at 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 Lava Joto, at the the car wash scandal that impacted Petrobras, you know, spreads were way, way wider than we are right now in dollar terms. So, you know, you can definitely wait it out a little bit and perhaps get some better value. But for some of the people you're talking to who are going, you know, boots on the ground into a place like Brazil, seeing, you know, you know, perhaps private opportunities and private capital or private equity, you know, now might be a very good time to take advantage just because the currency has gotten kicked so badly in recent weeks. Weakest DM right now? Weakest DM. When you look at it? <laughs> um, well, you know, you have to kind of, and I'm going to exclude all the single B sovereign names like Tajikistan and Suriname. Oh, I'm right, going to basically right. focus on probably Argentina and Turkey. They are certainly um, on their heels. I think of the two, I feel a little bit more confident with Argentina than Turkey just because of what I had kind of previously mentioned. Right. But, you know, there's some others that have some more pain in the immediate term ahead. Indonesia is one that comes to mind. I was on the tape earlier today speaking about them. This is an economy whose current account deficit is blown out from 5 to $8 billion in just one quarter. And um, and that they've ripped through fourteen billion of FX reserves over the last you know year to date. I mean that's yeah. a lot of money. So so yeah, I think I think there's some weakness ahead. Sounds there as like well. emerging markets as usual to some extent. Maybe amped up a little bit. I don't know. All right, Damien Sassauer, thank you so much. Chief Emerging Market Credit uh, strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence in our New York studio, right here on Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. And sitting alongside with us for that here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio is Don Gibble. He is executive vice president at CIBC Private Wealth Management. He is based, don't be jealous, in Livingston, Montana, but he's here with us in New York this afternoon. I'm jealous. Great. I am. You got to do what jealous. you want to do, friends. I know. There you go. <laughs> I lived um, here for 40 years. I mean, think about it. You did your time. You did your time. Um, so, Don, you know, talking a little bit with you before we came on air, you know, one of the things I wanted to dig into is you travel all around the world. You know, you manage money globally. Uh, you talked about sort of going, I believe, to China a number of times, most yeah, recently times. this year. Um, you go a couple times a year. China seems to be at the forefront, as it always is, but even more so now in terms of trade negotiations, trade wars. Uh, how do you factor that into your investment thesis at this point? Uh, that's a you know, super question because it gives me an opportunity to speak for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't uh, know me. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the situation in China is we have a one-man government. It's getting tighter. He's consolidating his power, it appears. Uh, and there is some nervous, nervousness because they are trying to regulate the economy. It's not a democracy. Don't confuse yourself that it is. Uh, but they are trying to make China a better place for the Chinese. Now, the Chinese, we know, have been getting away with a lot of what we would call poor business practices for decades. And we have a uh, president, whether you like him or not, 
who has said it's over. You know, we're we're going to renegotiate. We're not, not just with China, but with mm-hmm. our allies as well as as the people we think are our enemies. And in order to do that, you got to shake the pot, and that's what's happening. And China, with 1.4 billion people and the second largest economy in the world, and growing at at least twice the rate of the United States, is a force to be reckoned with. And we, as investors, have to look at the management of companies, the quality of government, and where we think the government's going before we make an investment. We're not traders. We're not in and out. We're we're long-term investors. And if you've got the dynamics that we see in the PRC, the People's Republic, we have to be ready to make long-term commitments. And if it goes up, that's terrific, and maybe we buy a little more. If it goes down, we see what we missed. And if we still like the story, if you liked it at 10, you're going to love it at 6. You know, So it's, uh, uh, it's a matter of spending a lot of time on research, mm-hmm. going, to, going to companies, not having them come to me, but me going to Shanghai or Beijing or inland China, as well as Hong Kong and Singapore. And figuring out where the good companies are, where where there there are great investments in pollution abatement and transportation and pharmaceuticals, you know. Well, take us there because we've got an you know an interesting issue of Bloomberg Business Week right now, and one of the stories talks about Shenzhen and how it's mm-hmm. become kind of this quiet city, a new era of cities because so much is electric, electric scooters, electric bikes, electric uh, dump truck trucks, you name it. It's the most amazing transformation. Not just Shenzhen, but take Shanghai. I mean, a city about the same size population-wise is Australia, hmm. and yeah. and and <laughs> modern and beautiful, and full of poor people and full of rich people. I'm going to go see uh, uh, that new movie that's out now, the, uh, the Crazy Rich Asians. Crazy Rich Asians tonight. <laughs> We've talked about which this movie. is uh, you know I some of those people are my clients, right? <laughs> <laughs> but still, but still, what was it, Jason? That statistic that kind of blew our mind about you know whether China could become what kind of superpower it would right. be. But was it the average income or something was still below that oh, of, of an individual in Mexico? So yeah. it has such a long like. There's it, some that have done absolutely. very well, but I mean, we have 330 million people in the United States. They got 1.4 billion people. We will see in the next two generations continued growth of the domestic economy in China, which means they're going to be importing a lot of stuff. And so do you so, in, so how do you invest against that? Or how do you invest into that? You know, Are it's you not buying... against, it's with. With, right, right. <laughs> uh, what, what, we're, what I'm looking at, what are, what are the things, when I look at a country, when I look at investing, I want to see what countries, what regions are growing at an adjusted rate faster than the rest of the world, what industries within that region are doing the best, and what are the best companies in that? I mean, yeah. it's pretty straightforward stuff. It it requires a lot of travel and a lot of digging and a lot of homework and a lot of help from a lot of people around me. Uh, but what, I, what I'm looking at in China is pollution abatement because mm-hmm. they have a water and air problem that is could stop them if they don't get it fixed. I'm looking at transportation, and that comes in, that's rail and air, as well as highway. And there are lots of construction companies that are very well run that I've been looking at. Um, uh, The Chinese are eating better. They're gaining weight. Uh, And so what what kind of companies are there in the food industry or the distribution of food? 
And then, of course, retail, because yeah. the Chinese income is rising. They're going to be buying more. You know, it used to be the investment play when you looked at China were all of these kind of global multinational companies and the expectations of them benefiting as the Chinese became real domestic consumers. But we know China has been putting a lot of efforts and money to develop its own domestic industries that their own domestic consumer will consume. Is that the play now? It's not the global multinationals? I think you need some of both. I mean, take the auto industry, for instance. Uh, the auto industry last year in China sold 20 million cars. <laughs> Compare that to the United States. So there's room there's, there's room for Buick. <laughs> there's, there's, there's room for Volkswagen. There's room for, for the high-end automobiles. But there's a lot of room for the Chinese automobile manufacturers, and they're doing what the Koreans and the Japanese did before them. They started with junk, and they're making better cars. So, I mean, you know, it won't be that far off before you will see Chinese vehicles on the streets of New York. Don Gimbel, you are Executive Vice President at CIBC Private Wealth Management. Here with us in New York, but you're based in Livingston, Montana. You're a man in a Bloomberg terminal. We love it. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.